Hey, this is Dave Fryer. Welcome to the Reluctant Agilist. Jim Benson's back. It's been a really long time since we've done an interview, but he's got a new book out. And Jim, thank you for making time for this. A new book coming out. Coming out, yes. <laughs> it's, it's good to be here. <laughs> We're being ambitious with it. So um, <laughs> before we talk about the book, for just in case there's anybody here who's not familiar with you and with your work, how do you explain that to people now? Because you've got a wider range of stuff. Mm. out there now so so my work has always been about collaboration uh when i was uh a, um, a transportation engineer and building subways or when i was working on the aids quilt or when you know we started personal kanban or kanban or all those things the, the key thing that i do is getting groups of people together and then making sure that they work as as a cohesive group okay and that the individuals in those teams feel, not just feel, but they are um, given the ability to be the best professionals that they can be. So my, my thing about uh, it, that we, we say individuals work in teams to create value. And in Agile, we talk a lot about teams. In Lean, we talk a lot about value. And the individual professionals tend to get lost in, in the shuffle. Yeah. And so to have a healthy system, you need to be paying attention to all three. Okay. So I want to ask you one sort of leading question before we go into this. Um, I get asked a lot of questions about collaboration. How do I make them do this? How do I make them do that? You just said you get people together and, and they get them to collaborate. I think I know the answer, but I want to check. Is this something where you can say like, this is how you do this? Or is this more like, let the system teach you what it needs you to do for it to yeah. make it work. No, it's uh, it's uh, it's coercion and threats. <laughs> the yardstick. <laughs> um, so what I found is that, or actually what I know is that collaboration is kind of like change. Okay. Um, we don't want things to continue to suck yet we tend to resist change. Everybody does just naturally and collaboration is the same way. Okay. And so we feel like in our heads when we're just working alone in our heads and at our desks that we have control. And safety, yeah. And safety, but it's all, it's all an illusion of control because none of our work is actually ever done alone. We always have a customer <laughs> we yeah. always have a team. We always have a reason that we're doing the work. And those relationships are there, whether we've isolated ourselves or not. <laughs> and okay. if we're not working closely with those people, then we will have rework. We will have misunderstandings. We will have frustrations. And people don't want that. So what we tend to do when faced with any situation is we look for where people are frustrated Okay. And then look at the impediments to the flow of information, uh, the flow of work, the flow of responsibility, the flow of respect. And those are all collaborations. Okay. <laughs> Strangely enough. So collaboration doesn't mean like that we're pairing all the time and getting together and working on the same thing. It means that even when I'm working alone, I have faith that Dave Pryor is doing the thing that he's supposed to do. And then when we're done, they're going to come together and, and mesh nicely. Okay, so that's a really interesting thing. So the, the, the interaction extends beyond just we're in a room together or we're on Zoom together or whatever. Yep. Okay, so we should give the title of the book, The Collaboration Equation. Mm -hmm. And what led you to write this? Um, 
Well, so like I said, everything that I've done, you know, so when I was a, a, you know, 14 or 15 years old and an angry punk rocker in the middle of Grand Island, Nebraska. And if you want like a situation where you're going to start as an angry punk rocker and then really <laughs> just gonna say, punk rock continuously Nebraska, improve, yeah, totally. <laughs> improve your anger, try it in Grand Island, Nebraska. So <laughs> um, I, I had a band and that band had to play in front of other people. Otherwise, it's just a bunch of people screwing around in a basement. So we not only had to learn to play our instruments and how to make records and how to, you know, mix and do all those things, but we also had to learn how do we, how do we build a market in a place that's fundamentally hostile to us? Right. And, and, uh, and we did that. Uh, so that taught me like from a very early age that if you work with other people, you right. will achieve things that you could never achieve on your own. And work is generally done faster. It's generally done better. It feels slower because we have to stop our typing and talk yeah. to other people. It feels slower. But if you've ever managed a project where the team is all informed and they're all working together and they talk a lot, right? the work gets done a lot faster. And I have, I have, you know, unfortunately for me now, 35 years worth of experience <laughs> that I've been able to dump into this book about working like with teams all around the world in, okay. in, in Vietnam and South Africa and Nebraska and wherever else, uh, where human beings really like to work with other human beings as long as the game is understandable. Okay. So politics is what we hate and politics happens because people aren't clear about what to do next or how they can help. Okay. Sorry, that so, was a long answer. That's okay. I, can I stick with the band thing for a second? Cause I want to, I want to ask you about this. So it sounds like in your band that everybody was engaged in creating the stuff, but also marketing, finding places to play, promoting the band. A lot of the bands that I was in, it was like, there'd be one person that would do that. Mm -hmm. And when you talk about the collaboration, I would say that like most of us collaborated, but then there was the drummer. We were just trying to get the drummer to show up. Like if that, <laughs> if that happened, that was cool. And I, that I actually sounds a lot like, constant. yeah, but that sounds like a lot of the teams that I've been on too in my professional life. Like you, you were, is that the case that you're in, in your band, everybody was sort of all throwing in together on this? Um, so here is the beauty of my, my peer group and my bands uh and that was the uh my peer group went up like four years and down four years because we were we were punk geeks or just geeks in the middle of a geek hostel place okay so we, in our in our in our class we couldn't possibly i don't know fill a cohort right. of friends uh so what happened was you always had like people who had been around for a while and people who who uh who were who were noobs so just like a team right yeah. and so what we had was a fairly coherent culture okay that they were able to come in and work on like on these nights we play dungeons and dragons on these nights we get together and make really loud noises and on this these nights we drive around aimlessly between Grand Island, Hastings, and Kearney and look for something to do, or hopefully our parents would hope something not to do. Right. <laughs> um, but uh, in, in the office, 
we have an added issue, which is that people are already uncertain as to their status okay. at work. They don't know what they're going to get judged on. They don't know what's going to happen to them if they drop the ball on this, that, or the other thing. And they're given more work than they can handle. Mm-hmm. So when they start, we start going into things like, you know, can we talk about our culture <laughs> or can we do this or can we do that? People are yeah. like, uh, isn't that the product owner's job? <laughs> you know, right. is the product owner supposed to tell us what our culture is? Uh, so our challenge is in the end, and the reason for the book is, can we build a culture that we can maintain and that culture provide enough cues for where we can help, how we okay. can become better professionals, what the work is that we need to get done, remove um, any obstacles for psychological safety and remove any obstacles or any fear of doing the right thing. Okay. So I have a bunch of questions off of that, but for the first one is how do you define culture? Mm. Okay. So for me, uh, culture is the social system. Our team is based on that allows us to get work done at all. Okay. So that may negate my second question, which was, you said you want everyone to feel safe and no one mm-hmm. to have fear. I was just in a conversation with somebody last week where uh, in a work situation, they, they brought up a topic and they were kind of, there was like head cutting. I mean, they were just taken down. And uh-huh. when I, and I witnessed it. And what I saw was the person that was aggressor is not the right word, but the person that was having at them mm-hmm. um, was doing it with intent and consciousness and, and trying to create a safe space. And I think if I'd been on the receiving end of it, I would have taken it as guidance and instruction. But the person who was the recipient took it as a personal attack. Mm-hmm. And so I'm mm-hmm. assuming that like for me, if I'm on a team, if I do something that sucks, I don't want somebody to be nice to me. I want them to say, like, dude, that sucks. <laughs> tell me why but, but don't waste my time by making me figure it out right um, but that safety is going to be a moving thing it's not a constant it would be different in different cultures right yeah yeah and so that's that's a huge thing so if if you're in oslo you know or you know is somewhere in in scandinavia your your instantiation of of your culture is going to be different and the nature of the psychological safety presents itself is going to be different. Um, you know, if you are in New York where you are, it's going to be very different. Uh, we just worked last week with a team in Milwaukee, which has, uh, you know, they, they have, they have Wisconsin nice, yeah. which is, you know, they're the, they're the they're the Jets and um, and Minnesota Nice or the Sharks, right? And they get together and passive aggressive each other to death. Um, uh, and uh, so when you go into different locations, the the nature of um, the social norms change, yeah. which is a big issue now because, like my German clients, aren't my German clients anymore. They're now my global team clients. Oh, wow. Okay. All of their teams are now global. So they've got people in India and people in South America and people in Australia and people in Russia and, and so forth. And uh, in the Middle East, 
Okay. And so, you know, you get, you get, you know, two Scandinavians and two Israelis together. And then you're just like, well, <laughs> that, and that's going to add layers of complexity onto the cultural thing, because you're going to have to understand every country's culture and then build your own on top of it. Right. Yeah. Or you can circumvent all of that okay. and have the team get together and do what we call a right environment exercise. Okay. And uh, that's and this is a, a big part of the book is that individuals and teams create value. Mm -hmm. uh, when I was when I was in the middle of my career, uh, so just becoming a senior urban planner and uh, a member of the American Institute of Certified Planners, um, when I was kind of in that initial um, management role, I was at a company called David Evans and Associates. And their tagline was, we find outstanding principal, or outstanding professionals and give them the tools they need to do an outstanding job. And they meant it. Okay. And it was awesome. And it was, it was, it was such a wonderful culture. And no one left there angry. <laughs> okay. They, 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 you know, if we left, it was because you had a better offer or you wanted to move on in your career in some way. But it was always like, oh, man, I got to leave DEA. Yeah. Um, and that was my first taste at, at something called the right environment, which is, okay. have we intentionally built a culture that allows the professionals on this team to be the best professionals that they can be? And if you start from that, that then you just get everybody together and you figure out, okay, what do we need as individuals and as a group? And then how do we make sure that we've made a culture that can, a maintainable culture an okay. intentional culture that can actually allow those things to happen. Okay. And psychological safety will always come from that, even if you have introverts and extroverts or, you know, loud and quiet, or you've got a color wheel thing and you've got greens and purples and reds and fuchsias or floating around or, yeah. you know, whatever. So this sounds like it's a very, it's, it's more intentional than just like you, you people go collaborate on this thing now. Um, or the assumption that, you know, that sort of hand wavy agile thing where if we put people together, they'll just self-organize and magical go. wondrous things will happen, which to me just sounds insane. Um, but I know there's a lot of people who believe that humans do that. I just yeah. haven't met a lot of them. Yeah. Um, <laughs> there are a lot of people who there are a lot of people who make money claiming that that happens. <laughs> but you have to be more explicit and intentional about it, right? That's part of what you're. Yeah. And not only that, but you have to be very clear with people who, who don't want to be managers mm -hmm. <laughs> that uh, as, prof so this is like, you know, in software, we talk about software crafts people, yeah. you know, like, like we're all like working with like wooden mallets in the basement, you know, we put some code in the vice and we're dun, dun, dun. it's like, no, <laughs> our, our code flies airplanes and restarts people's hearts. Hopefully, we're not, we, hopefully yeah. it does those hopefully, things. Hopefully, hopefully. So, so the more we're craftspeople, the more it won't. Okay. Because <laughs> craftspeople are like, you know, hey, you need a little more flourish here, or you yeah, know, more bedazzle. That's right. We we don't want that. We want we want craft that works and doesn't kill people in the process. So we we want professionalism. Okay. And even even and you know we've talked about this before, but even you know if I'm I'm Herbie Hancock and I'm in my 80s, I still practice every day. Yeah. Because I'm a professional, okay. not because I'm a craftsperson, but because continuous improvement is the hallmark of professionality. And if you don't have it, you're not professional. You're just screwing around. 
And that oh. includes the, the understanding the environment in which you create your stuff. Okay. So you can't, you don't get a hall pass from that. So you obviously I'm a little bit passionate about this. Well, yeah, but it's, I mean, it's good. So you have to become, I guess, a student of collaboration then, right? So then, then to just follow that through, it would be my responsibility to not just learn how to unlock whatever is in myself, but learn how to deepen my ability to engage with others and meet them where they are and across generations or other kinds of boundaries, learn how to meet people and, and work with them. So I'm gonna I'm gonna share my screen really quickly, okay. uh, and I'm going to let the world see some sausage being made. <laughs> All right, so I'm just gonna share this uh, this screen here really quickly, and this is literally part of the book being written that you will never see in the book, and you'll know that because of the comment on the right. <laughs> so, but I want I just want to point out two things. So my editor told me that I needed to write some principles for 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 the book. So I've been working on them, and here are the first two. There's a bunch of other. There's like five of them, but the first two are that everyone that is a professional needs to pay attention to what's going on. You can't just do your work. That's not a professional. Okay. If you if you work for me and you wait for me to tell you what to do, number one, you're a 1099. Okay. <laughs> you're you're not actually part of the team. Right. You are a contractor. Contractors are told what to do. Team members figure out the right thing to do. All right. And you can only figure out the right thing to do if you're paying attention. So you pay attention, and then the second thing is you give a damn. And when I was working in construction in New York. This was literally give a shit. Uh, and so whenever, um, what do you call them? Uh, leaders. Yes, those things. <laughs> they would say, what do I need to do better? I would say, you need, you need to give a shit. Yeah. You, you, need, you need to care. And so at Turner Construction, they actually call this active caring. If oh, you can believe that. Like active listening. Okay. Yeah. Like, yes. But, but if you can imagine a 100 and pretty close to 20-year-old now construction company in New York, using the words active caring, I didn't give them those words. They came up with those words. Freaks me right out. <laughs> I'm, I, I would think that they would lean more for the scatological reference, but uh, <laughs> they understood and they do understand innately that if the leaders and all of the people at Turner don't care, Right. Then construction Everything workers die selfish. and 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 the world becomes nothing but but punch lists. So okay. we need as professionals to all give a damn. Period. Uh, and if we don't, then we're always gonna be suffering. Then we're always gonna be just lackeys. Okay, so that's I I understand what you're saying, but I think it's a tall order for a lot of people that they're gonna show up and actually care about what they're doing. I mean, let me say this. I want to, I want to say this a different way. <laughs> so I, I agree with everything that you just said. And I feel like I try really hard to surround myself with people who show up that way. But I get so many people that I talk to in classes that, that are surrounded by the opposite of that. And, and maybe they all need to be 1099s, but there's so many people out there who are used to just coasting and not having to do anything but like physically be present. Yep. Um, and getting basic competence out of them is often enough of the struggle. Getting them to care is like, 
growing wings and a unicorn horn. <laughs> so how do you how do you do that? How do you entice somebody into giving a shit when they show up? Um, yeah, again, it's a, it's all bribery and coercion. <laughs> I, well, <laughs> is it that is it that you just have to find the right people so that like in in your realm that's what you're surrounded with, or are there ways to get people to actually change and care? Right. So, so in the personal Kanban book, we talked about this. Uh, so there's a myth in software development that still persists. Damn books, 12 years old now. And this myth is still out there that you hire A-list coders. Yeah. Everyone go buy my book, read just that sentence, and then stop, stop doing that. So you hire people who are good at coding. Okay. who have terrible collaboration skills, and then you wonder why you have problems when you go to integrate your code. Oh, you, okay. You wonder why you have problems at that point when, you, uh, when the customer shows up and they want something and that person sits there and is entirely silent through the whole meeting. And then as soon as the customer leaves, they complain about what the customer just asked them to do. Okay. Um, so... Um, so we don't want to hire people who have proven themselves to be awesome typists. Or awesome working alone all night by themselves, fixing a problem that they probably created in the first place. They, yeah, because because then what they do is they write code that only they can read. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we, we've, we've all been down, down that path. Um, uh, that uh, we, we had a client once that had written an entire... Um, a uh, huge sauce product and it was all written in just nasty scripting language uh, x uh, i won't talk about it so that we don't offend the people who are religiously attached to nasty scripting language x but let's just say that the whole system started to break down because of the incredible you know of, of an italy's worth of spaghetti code okay and um they had heroes and the heroes kept fixing the code and the heroes yeah. would be like up all night fixing the code and they'd sleep it off and then they come in and you know repeat and repeat and i was like when are you gonna build 2.0 they're like oh we, there's no way we could because our subject matter experts are these heroes and so what we did too busy smoking to quit smoking that's exactly <laughs> right <laughs> that's right i i do coke so that i can work <laughs> harder so that i can afford more coke uh so so what we did is we built a kanban for them that literally had um, uh, a picture of, of, it said, it said in the thing, it literally said shit happens. And then it had a picture of a little Superman. And then it had a picture of a bed. <laughs> and then it had a picture of a geek. Okay. And then it had a picture of a happy face. And so what we, what we, we just added one step to their workflow, which is dude would come in, work all night, fix whatever thing had blown up. Right. Then immediately the next after sleeping it off would come back and work with a normal person. Okay. And they would refactor the code into something that was readable and well okay. written. And um, did that cause some problems up front because the because the crap density was so high? Yes. But that didn't last for very long because the rework started to go away. Okay. And so that's a, a weird way of saying, look, you can, you can leverage your existing toxic culture right. by trying to see where the exit point from that toxic culture is 
and then just instantiate that and start working the work towards that. So those people who never wanted to work with people before ended up liking the refactoring because they knew they were being better professionals and they could see an end to their endless hell. Because okay. they're like, oh my God, I can't quit. Otherwise this whole company will die. And so when the work started to calm down, they switched over to R&D and started right. to build 2.0. Okay. So the you joy know, of being somebody who works solo and has that like complete sense of purpose and focus is replaced by the joy of being somebody who builds stuff with someone else that actually works, that can outlast you. Professional right. satisfaction is a wonderful thing. <laughs> Well, it is, but it doesn't, it doesn't necessarily have the adrenaline punch of I'm Superman. No, uh, but then those guys got to go be Superman in a different way. Yeah. So you can either be toxic Superman, <laughs> uh, you know, uh, you know, the, the angry Superman who like, you know, I can't remember the whole movie. Red kryptonite Superman. <laughs> yes. <it's laughs> Um, but th this is, this is the thing is that when you go in, you have to work with reality. Mm -hmm. So you have people who are scared of a million different things. Right. You have a system that has built that fear. You have people who, uh, have built coping mechanisms to deal with that fear who are very reluctant to give them up. And most of those coping mechanisms are shut up and leave me alone. Yeah. Um, so you know, it's uh, the when we start off with a value stream mapping exercise, one of the reasons why that is powerful for people is because they start to see that the things that have really been upsetting them are upsetting the rest of the team as well. Okay. And the fixes for them are almost always either automation or collaboration. Okay. They're very rarely, you know, beat the crap out of Greg. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, we're watching a lot of succession, have we? <laughs> so, so the the um, our role in that is to make sure that they stay focused on that path, not. How are you going? Because because where everybody always goes is they say, here's a problem in our workflow. Let's get a champion for that. And then they always want to put champions on that. And, and so we're always like, all right, you put a champion on that. Who's the champion going to work with? Well, who's ever available? No. <laughs> well, they want somebody to be accountable for it. And that champion is the accountable person. Like that, that's a pretty big mindset shift, right? Where you're going to say that the whole group shift. is going to be accountable. Yeah, it's it's a painful mindset shift, and it's it's you know it's how we get into every political problem that the world has right now. Yeah, is that we put too much faith in single individuals to solve things that they cannot solve on their own. Okay. Um, I want to go back to the culture thing for a second, if that's okay. So I know that that's a big deal, and I know that there's a lot of people who really love that, you know, culture eats everything in the universe for breakfast approach to everything. Like without yep. culture, nothing exists, but culture by itself isn't enough to do anything. There has no. to be other things in place. So what yes. B 
beyond well, just the basic culture stuff, what do you, what else do you have to have? Yeah. Well, so so the other the thing about culture eats everything for breakfast or or what have you is that culture is always an assumption. I see very few teams set out and say, this is the culture we want, and these are the actions that we're going to take to get it. Right. And the moment that you say that, you have now operationalized your culture. Okay. <laughs> we want a right environment in which we can be the best professional possible. So we want to make sure that we have these documentation rules and that we talk to each other on a regular basis and that we respect the client and that we're all involved in planning or whatever they might be. Okay. You figure those things out and then you make sure that the work that you do every day doesn't screw that up. Okay. <laughs> so we're really great at having retrospectives or offsites and figuring out all things that we want. And then we go the next day to work and everybody's overloaded with work and they all ignore each other again. Well, that, that's what, yeah. Cause I, it sounds to me like when I hear people talk about culture, it's like, it's the excuse that they have for not being awesome at what they're doing. Like, well, if we had culture, that's right. <laughs> the team organized and no culture. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but that you have a culture anyway. It's just you have an intentional culture that's designed to help you thrive, right? I, I think that that Simon and Garfunkel or the Paul Simon line works fine. <laughs> the team ain't got no culture. Everybody must get stoned. Um, <laughs> um, so I, at Turner, uh, you start off with a right environment exercise before you ever go into a into a trailer, okay. and the the elements of that are on are in their obeya, you know. So you okay. have visualizations that say, you know, safety is important. So we're going to track safety. We're going to watch safety. We're going to talk about safety. We're going to be safe. Um, we're going to make it an expectation that if someone sees something, anything at all that is unsafe they should do something about it. Okay. And, and before that was something that people were just told at Turner, right? You know, if you see something, go do something about it. But people also know at Turner, they have like really huge deadlines that are super stressful and they're rushing from place to place. They can't stop to move a bucket or, or, or put something in front of a hole or, or whatever might be happening on the job site. Okay. Now on those sites, they do. Um, so there is the culture side, which is just like the, the culture isn't just like, I like you and you like me. And so we work together gleefully. Uh, but it's that we as professionals understand that if we don't, if we don't work together in a good way, we're going to do crap work. If we don't move the bucket or cover the whole bad things are going to happen. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. And so now it becomes a responsibility, not accountability, but a responsibility to act. Okay. So now psychological safety becomes an expectation. And so then when we're doing things like building our Kanban boards or having our retrospectives or having our stand-up meetings or our huddles or whatever we're doing, those are now part, those decisions are now part of what we check up on. Okay. Uh, when we onboard, are people being onboarded in a way that makes them feel like, you know, that makes them part of the team, that gets them active as quickly as possible? Uh, okay. how much confusion, Hey, person who just started, you know, it, you know, there seemed like there was less confusion. And then person who started two months before was like, we totally improved the things that really upset me when we improved this new person or new, uh, onboarded this new person. Okay. So we have our operational elements that now need to be underwritten by and promote our cultural elements. 
So this is like inspecting what you would do in a retrospective, inspecting and adapting the team, the way they're engaging. This is this amped up to a much more intentional and conscious yeah. level. Yeah, this is this is more on a, on the lean scale of plan, do, study, and and adjust. Okay. And and to be clear, that culture is something that we're also running those PDSA cycles on. Okay. And that if we don't maintain our culture, then our culture will fail. And if our culture fails, then it doesn't matter what we tell people to do. They're not going to be able to do it because they, they won't have the agency to get the work done. Okay. You have to have a healthy culture in order to have agency and psychological safety. Okay. You can't, um, you can't, that's why it drives me crazy when people are like, we have this really crappy culture, but we're going to send everybody out to uh, sensitivity training. And you're like, damn it. Yeah, that's right. And everybody's like, oh, I got to send these idiots now. out to sensitivity training. <laughs> um, you mentioned obey. Could you explain what that is for people that aren't familiar with the term? Sure. So an obey is a single room where all of the information that a team needs to work lives. Okay. And uh, so we have those in, in almost all of the trailers uh, in, in New York or offices in New York for, for Turner. Um, uh, and I have used them on every project since the eighties. Okay. And if you just have a scrum board or you're just using, you know, Jira or a Kanban or something, you don't fully understand your work. Okay. You have a, you have a good, you have an okay window into your work. It's better than not knowing those things, but it's a single, it's, it's like one data source in a complex environment. So in a virtual environment, like we've been in for the past couple of years, could you, how would that work? Is um, it like my, my obey is Jira and Slack and email and whatever, and I'm going to fit all those windows onto my screen at one time? Yeah. Yeah. So that's definitely the group marriage approach. <laughs> uh you know and it's like uh you know did i put this in slack or did i put it in email or yeah you I can never remember where the yeah. thing is yeah yeah and and that's where almost everybody lives right okay uh, so i'll show you what we're doing but now. we'd like to have one it, like i've seen the pictures you have of turner like there's one big wall right exactly so at turner this might look like this might look like or this does look like this so this is the Coney Island Hospital Project. This is their Obeya room and their main conference room. Um, and uh, um, up here at the top, they have their milestone map for the whole for the whole time. Okay. Uh, here on this particular day, these were pictures of pilings that had just gone in for the hospital. Okay. Uh, this is their safety record and goals and things that they're doing for safety. This is their procurement schedule over here on the wall. Incredibly complex. You know, it goes way beyond uh, the this guy's back. Um, and here, this is like the schedule of like what trades people are going to be on what floors at, at what time. Um, and it goes all the way around the room. And this obey okay. even includes things like the plans for the building and a three-dimensional, you know, kind of model, model for it. You can yeah. see over here that they took part of it out and they were talking about it, you know, earlier in the meeting. Okay. And the upshot is that anybody, whether it's the project team or whether it's the clients or whether it's the designers or whoever, anyone can enter this room and get an idea of something that's going on that's of interest to them. 
Okay. They don't have to go ask other people. They don't have to go find it. It's all in, it's all in one place. Yeah. And the really cool thing about this particular room is, well, two, two cool things. Cool thing A is that um, there's always been a division uh, between the tradespeople and the general contractor. You know, okay. so it's, it's kind of like, you know, a, a classic management labor divide. And so tradespeople would do anything they could to never go into the trailer. Yeah. Right. Because that's where, you know, the narcs lived. And uh, so once this went up, all of a sudden, just everybody's random tradespeople would come in and start looking at stuff all the time. Okay. And they're like, Oh my turns like, oh my God. And so this was part of their right environment. We we need this information in order to get our work done. And they realized that part of their right environment was also helping make sure that the tradespeople had the information that they needed. So when the when the ground floor of the parking garage was done for the hospital, they built out a giant obeya room for the tradespeople. Wow with a kitchen nice <laughs> uh because they they knew that they needed to extend that right environment out to them that the professionalism in here should should extend out to there um the second thing about this team is that this team was super hyper informed i got tons of stories about them but the most important was then when covid hit these people here uh came into this room and started working on what they were going to do to mitigate the impacts of COVID on, you know, how were they were gonna, how, how something that was this collaborative was gonna happen in a distributed form. Okay. And how they were gonna communicate to each other and with the clients and so forth and make sure that things still happen appropriately and safely and on time because they were building a public hospital that was desperately needed. Yeah, this was not COVID couldn't slow this project down. So, so what? Go ahead. Oh, so so they became the the standard bearer for the rest of Turner, like worldwide, yeah. on what to do for COVID because they they knew where all their stuff was. Yeah, there was no confusion about how to do ops, and okay. that is beautiful to me. <laughs> there's one more thing to, I want to add to it. So when you started talking about it, I was thinking like, you know, that would be a pretty cool job to be the person for the team who set up the Obey and kept it all up to date. And like, that would be like therapy for somebody like me, yep. but it, it would just be me doing, it would be my room that I would set up for everyone, optimize for everyone. And then you're like, yep. and they all came together. If it, like, what do you mean they all, oh, now that my job just went away. <laughs> if, if we decide together, then it's a shared understanding we're, we're doing that collaboratively again that goes back to your point from earlier so this 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 pink shirted uh guy in back here yeah his name is chris christensen and he's in charge of the whole project so he's basically the ceo of this project a, okay. a billion dollar plus project and there was one day where i went to work with one of their teams to solve some problem and i got there and they were in the middle of a crisis Mm -hmm. And there was somebody who needed something from them and it was a big emergency and everybody was running around trying to get this thing and they couldn't find certain pieces of information. And I was like, you know, uh, Chris, it, and Chris is like sitting at the front of the room. Let's see if I can find the room while I'm talking here. But, but Chris was sitting at the front of the room and he was just watching them. Yeah, it's this room here. 
Um, he was, oh, come on, you, bring your friend. Um, it, it, Chris was like sitting, this is Paul. He was sitting up where Paul, Paul is now okay. and, in, a, in a chair. And he was just watching everybody run around and do stuff. And I was like, you know, it really seems like this is a bad time. So I'm going to head back to the office and I'll come by tomorrow. He's like, no, 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 sit down. So I sat down. <laughs> and 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 he just sat there and made me watch them for like two hours and they they ended up finding all of the information they needed and then as soon as that information was found they all went back into into the obeya and they're basically like okay how can we make sure that that never happens again and then we designed a system that would get that particular information to them Right. I left, I came back two weeks later and they built that system, but they built it in a way that it was on tablets. Okay. So that now whenever that information was available, it was already on the floor, regardless of which floor you were on in the building. Okay. And then that ended up being sent out to every other project any elsewhere. But what Paul was showing me or what Chris was showing me that day is that, is that, they were so used to having the information that they needed that a they could find whatever was left and b yeah. as soon as it was done they got this okay. so you talked about working yourself out of a job that was the day i'd worked myself out of a job because <laughs> well, those, awesome, those guys had, had, had you know they were like we got it we, we totally got it um it was it was such a beautiful day and he was so so damn sneaky about how he did it he never said what he was doing he's just like i'm gonna make jim sit and watch yeah <laughs> so so that's that obeya and the way that we're working now is we're using this obeya okay so this is mira this is yeah and this is in iobeya this is in a french tool called iobeya oh oh okay yeah so miro we've used we use miro for most of uh covid and it works okay but Miro tends to, it has, because it's so free form and has no boundaries, right. it's very easy for it to devolve into chaos okay. very quickly. So here we have th this whole thing in their parlance is a room. So this is our obey a room. Right. And we have, or I guess a, a hexagon. <laughs> so these are our six walls. So this is our, our wall for daily operations, our wall for creation and product our wall for sales, our wall for PR, okay. and each of these have different visualizations in them that allow us to get our work done. And, you know, we can just uh, zoom in on things like this is our, 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 our work with our um, uh, marketing client or our okay. marketing team. And so as you can see right now, we are behind. <laughs> okay. They're like, hmm. <laughs> uh, but it's in here with our work and with the stuff for our huddles and everything else. So it's all in one place, one system of record, one place where we can all go look at it together. That's and right. See the same thing. Okay. That's right. And so with one of our clients, what we're trying to design now is that um, on this first thing is going to be the items that are of corporate significance. Like, so these are, this is strategy, uh, major initiatives, sales, and blah, 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 blah. Yeah. And this is going to be team A and team B and team C and team D so that everyone gets to see what everyone is working on. Okay. And we can see 
we can see in a better way where cross teamwork is. Okay. So we can end the tyranny of dependencies and, and actually get work done. And okay. so this, uh, I, this is a very elegant tool and it's, it's French and it does one cool thing, which is that they will install it behind your firewall. So if you have security issues with people totally or safe. with sauce products, it's, it's just a, it's a no brainer. That's cool. Um, but what I like about it is it's just, it's really clean. Okay. It's really, really clean. And so even the Obeya that I showed you at Coney Island Hospital, right? It was, it, it had a lot of stuff on the walls, but you, but I could point at certain things and say, this information lives here. Yeah. So there was, there was order to it. Okay. With all the stuff that we've just talked about, I know that it's all related to what you're covering in the book, but how do you tie that together with the, like the, the purpose of the book and what you're trying to accomplish with it? Right. So uh, as I said, you know, in, in Agile, we talk a lot about teams and we have some prescriptive methods to work with teams. In Lean, we have talked about problem solving and value and we have some pre prescriptive measures there. Uh, what I want to do is help people build their own systems Okay. Using the tool sets that are out there, but being aware that, that they are individuals in these teams and they're creating value. So the group as a whole needs to identify like who and what and why they are, and then instantiate that in their business process. So it's not, it's not enough to just do two week iterations or have a Kanban or something like that. It's that you have to, you have to understand you have to understand the nature of your work and your role in making it better. Okay. And if you don't, then you're making it worse. <laughs> wow. Right. All right. <laughs> one That's, or the other. Yeah. I, I, this is, this is, this is, this is the throwdown, right? Okay. <laughs> so, and, and that's where quality comes from. So we always treated quality kind of like culture. Like it was just something that floated out there and says, you know, oh, quality, quality would be great. Go get the quality. So quality and culture come from us removing the operational impediments to having a good culture and good quality. Okay. And a good culture always wants better quality because professionals don't want to do crappy things. Yeah. <laughs> and quality can't exist in, in, in a fetid environment. You know, Conway already told us that. That's, that's Conway's law straight up. So in the book, we talk about uh, collaboration. Pretty much, this, it's kind of like this call. We talked about what collaboration is, uh, what the impediments are to collaboration and why. Right. We didn't talk about like bad actors and griefers and things like this in the call, but we, we kind of did. And then we talk about, okay, so here's how you figure out what a culture is. Here's how you figure out the work that you need to do. Here's how you figure out your relationship with quality. Okay. And then here's how you build your own system. Okay. And, you know, we can pull things from safe and Rupp and Ronald McDonald and, you know, everything else that we can find in the world. Yeah. Uh, but but are we as professionals satisfied with our work and the environment in which we work? And that is what the book is about. And right. uh, it's been a tough one to write because, as you might guess, just from this call, there's, a lot there's just it. a lot to talk about there. It's it's deep and and it's frustrating because a lot of us are so overwhelmed by life, the universe and everything yeah. that we're like, can't you just tell me what to do? Well, and 
<laughs> well, so so we're going to do another interview to kind of follow up on this. And it's about some of the stuff in the book. And I specifically want to get into the lenses and the stuff that I learned in, in the Lavin program in that. But I do want to just warn the people, if, if you check in for the second one, we're going to talk about some stuff that for me, it's like one of those things you can't unsee. Now that I've been taught to think about respect and I think about respect in a different way, it just pisses me off all the time because I can't, <laughs> I can't stop thinking about it. So um, it's a rock that once you turn over, you can't unturn over, I guess. Is the stuff. I mean, does that resonate? Do you yeah, agree yeah. With that? It's, it, we can go forever. It's a, it's a frozen pole that once you lick, it can't be unlicked. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> so, so Jim, thank you very much. And if, you're, if you've been listening to this, we're going to do another one. I'll, I'll link them both together as soon as we get it posted. But I really appreciate you making time for this. And for, awesome. I'm psyched to read the book when it's as I soon as so it's ready to have it out. <laughs> Trust me, this is a, this is a this is a very, very long birth. <laughs> All right, well, we'll just leave it there then. Thank you very much. Oh, what if people want to get in touch with you? What's the best way to do that? Oh, the best way to get in touch with me is either to send me an email to jim at moduscooperandi.com. Okay. Uh, which is always a handful to spell, or just to go to any of our websites, Modus Cooperandi or Personal Kanban or Modus Institute. And in the lower right-hand corner, there's a chat. So chat, and that will either become an email or I will show up and you'll be like, oh my God, I'm chatting with Jim Benson. <laughs> all right, and I'll make sure to include all those links in the show notes for this. Thank you very much. And uh, everybody who's watching, check back for the next one. Thanks. Way, but the new way is what you need My job's to make that switch from old to new Suck